Blog Talk Radio. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru. Welcome to Wine Talk for today, Wednesday, November 3rd, 2010. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'm your host, Stu the Wine Guru, coming to you live from beautiful Coral Springs, Florida, as I always do. Thanks to all of you listening out there worldwide and getting the word out. Welcome to all of you listening. I call that the power of the people meets the power of the Internet. Now, as you know, I will take your calls anytime during the show at 1-646-381-4860 or email me your questions at info at stewthewineguru.com. You can also go into my chat room here on the show page and chat with other wine enthusiasts or tweet me any questions you like to at stewthewineguru on Twitter and I'll read your live questions right here on the show. If you want to find out more about me, just Google Stu the Wine Guru. You can find the websites, videos, articles, and shows I'm currently a part of. Now, speaking of articles and reviews, I'm writing wine articles and reviews for Yahoo and The Examiner, so look for those as well. I've made a Wine 101 video series that can be viewed on YouTube, my website, or just about anywhere on the internet. So take a look and check those out because lots of good stuff. Hey, this is Sly Stallone. You're listening to Stu the Wine Guru on blogtalkradio.com. When I'm out making action pictures, I'm listening too. Right now, I'm sipping on a nice Tusker Red. No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo, only celebrity impersonators. So tonight I have on a winemaking innovator out of California's wine country. He has been in the industry for many years and has worked for such wine companies as Martin Ray, Steltzner, and Chimney Rock. He now heads up the winemaking for a legendary wine company, the name of the wine company, Trollado Wine Group. His name, Doug Fletcher, and he'll be with us shortly. Of course, the number to call in, 1-646-381-4860 or... If you're shy and you prefer the computer, email me your questions for both Doug and I to info at Stu the Wine Guru. You can also go on Twitter and tweet your questions to me, and I'll read them live here on the show. As always, I've opened a chat room for the listeners to go into, become a little bit more interactive. You can go in there and ask questions of Doug or myself, and I'll check into the chat room periodically during the show to get answers for you. Yeah, hi, this is uh, John Ratzenberger. When I'm not doing voiceovers for movies or doing commercials, I'm listening to Stu the Wine Guru. I suggest you do the same. No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo, only celebrity impersonators. But first up, I want to thank the listeners who are following me on Twitter. I love social media. I can talk directly to my listeners and my guests alike. I like giving updates in real time. And my guests are doing the same to promote the show. So, thanks to Twitter and social media. Some show notes. My next TV appearance will air in January. I'll be a guest on the Emmy Award-winning PBS show, Check Please, South Florida. I'll be kicking off its fifth season. So look for that. There'll be more TV appearances. I'll let you know as they happen. Also, I'll be narrating a promotional digital video for multiple Napa Valley wineries. So I'll give you the update on that when that's going to be around. 
if you want to know what events I'll be attending so you can meet up with me like my tweeples do on Twitter in January, I'll be a media sponsor at the second annual Key West Food and Wine Festival, January 27th through the 30th. Come meet me there. Have fun. Key West is unbelievable. February 23rd through the 27th, 2011, I will be covering the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. It's in its 10th year already. Wow, a decade. I'll be interviewing winemakers, exhibitors, keynote speakers, and even attendees. So come down, meet me, and say hi. March 18th through the 20th. I'll be at the Boca Bacanal Wine and Food Event. So lots of stuff ha happening down here in Florida. Check it out. So that's just the schedule so far. And since I'm a media sponsor for the Key West Food and Wine Festival, I have worked out a deal for my listeners so you can purchase tickets at a 20% discount. All you have to do is use the discount code STWG during the checkout process. Keep listening in and following me on Twitter for more information. My Twitter handle, as always, is StuTheWineGuru. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Either. Okay, I know I haven't been in a movie in a while. I got it. It's okay, I've embraced it. But when I'm not being either, I'm listening to Stu, the wine guru. Scott, you'll get your turn, okay? <laughs> no actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Just celebrity impersonators. If you have questions, I have answers. So call me at 1-646-381-4860 or email me at info at stewthewineguru.com or get into the chat room, get interactive, voice your opinion. Of course, you can get on Twitter and tweet your questions to at stewthewineguru. I'll ask your questions to Doug. Let me make sure that everyone listening knows the Terlato Vineyard website and can go there for more information about phenomenal wine that they make. To learn more about Doug Fletcher and Tolado Wines, go to www.tolatovineyards.com. You can find out about him, the different wines they represent and produce, and the imprint they've had on the wine industry. So without any further wait, let's bring on my guest for the night, the great winemaker, Doug Fletcher. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. I appreciate uh, you doing so. Um. So let me start off with my questions for you. Okay. So growing up in Oregon, prior to any real wine country existing there, Southern Baptist family, not big drinkers, what got you into wine? Uh, well, I've always been interested in cooking and food. Uh, you know, my my parents had a big garden when I was growing up, and we had apple trees, and and uh, we used to make apple cider because. Um, we couldn't eat all the apples fresh, and my mother was always, uh, you know, trying to to avoid it fermenting. But on occasion, it did, and I thought it was a kind of interesting product. And uh, a friend of my parents, a woman that was a registered nurse in in the hospital in Springfield, Oregon, uh, made fruit wines of all sorts, and she would invite a friend of mine and I over to their house on occasion and she would bring out her fruit wines and I thought that was a wonderful way of preserving fruit. So that's how I got started and then when I uh, came to California I met Peter Ray um, who was a professor at Stanford and he invited me to come up and, and work um, Harvest one year so that's how I really got started. Interesting, very, very interesting. I, you know, it's it's funny because you know each winemaker that I talk to has a kind of a different start or beginning and uh i'm always fascinated by uh, the variances and um you know that's i like the way that that it kind of happens so so fruit wine is really the the entree for you into the uh, into the business yeah it was i think a lot of winemakers if you ask them that question if, if they didn't you know if their parents didn't drink wine or or they didn't get exposed to wine at an early age probably at some point during college got um introduced to fine wines and decide it was a really wonderful beverage. Clearly all the winemakers that worked for me that happened for. But I kind of got into it from um from the fruit or you know, from the growing aspect and I think that's really sure. continued my whole career. I I'm a, I'm I, not that I'm not interested in making how the wines are made, but I'm really interested in how the the wines are grown in the vineyard and what we do there oh, yeah. and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Now you were you were part of the Stags Leap district in the beginning way back in the beginning. So if you would, 
Just tell my listeners a little bit about the great history of Stag's Leap. Well, it's the it's the first place really. Oh, I shouldn't say it was the first place. That, uh, it wasn't. I was going to say it was the first place that Cabernet was grown in Valley, but obviously that's not true. Um, it was a place where where Cabernet was thought not to be able to grow because it was too cool. And Nate Fay, one of the growers here in Stagsleep District, who's now passed away, um, went to Bob Mondavi and said, um, you know, I'm interested in growing grapes on my property. What should I grow? And Mon- you know, Bob told him Cabernet. Well, I don't think Bob had any particular insight into, you know, uh, AVAs or terroir uh, at the time, he just needed more Cabernet, so he told you know <laughs> Nate to plant it. Um, right. And of course, it turns out that that was really a, it's really a wonderful place for Cab. And um, since the AVA got started, we as an organization tr- have tried to f- figure out what causes what what makes our little area unique. And we did a big study with uh, Davis um, here. 20 years ago now, um, and I'm not sure we really came up with with something that was definable in terms of science. But I think most all of us in the district, all the winemakers and viticulturists, would say that um, you might be able to fool us about the wines if you if we did a blind tasting of wines from from Stag's Leap and say Rutherford or you know other parts of Napa Valley. You, we might not always be able to pick out the wine, but I'm pretty sure that if I um, was confronted with a cluster of grapes from all those same AVAs and somebody said, well, so where are these grapes from? I could pick out the Stag's Leap fruit. And, and the reason for that is because the, because the skins are uh, have a very unique tannin profile. The Cabernet tends to be tannic, and, and when you chew on the skins, you can taste that tannin. And the Cabernet from Stag's Leap has a very unique tannin profile, and it comes across in the wine. That, that's part of the reason why wines from our little region tend to be a very fruit-forward but very and very intense, but not you know extremely tannic. They're very supple tannin. Uh, and that, that's really from the grapes in the vineyards. Now, what causes right. that? Uh, we don't really know. Um, my hypothesis, uh, although I can't prove it, is that if you look at the average temperature um, in Stag's Leap, say, versus Rutherford, we're, it's about the same average temperature. It's warmer in Stag's Leap than it is, say, right directly across the valley um, in Yonkville. And the reason for that, okay. at least I believe, is that the rock outcroppings that are, are in fact, the Stag's Leap, the big rocks that are up in the hills behind the the, the wine region, um, hold all the afternoon's heat. And so they re-radiate that heat out at night. So during the day, we're, we're a little bit cooler than Rutherford, but in the night, we're a little bit warmer than Rutherford. And it's because of that rock outcropping. So, so the, the annual or the uh, the day uh, temperature changes are different here than they are in other places of the valley, and and that's about all I can, we can f- see is something that's unique. Now, whether that's what causes it or not, we don't know. But we did right. look at soil types. We did look at at um, lots of different other things, and there's nothing necessarily that stands out that's unique about Stag's Leap that we wouldn't find someplace else that we could you know, necessarily correlate the wine quality with. But the rock, rock outcroppings and our daily temperature fluctuations are unique. Well, and, and, and that makes sense. It definitely seems to be uh-huh. uh, logical in the uh, and integral to affecting, I would imagine, the, uh, the composition of the wine. Right. Um, so how did you come about the balanced vine method? Well, that's that's an interesting history as well. Um, when when I first got in the wine business, uh, as I said, I met Peter Ray, uh, Martin Ray's stepson, that, who is a professor at Stanford, and he invited me to come work with him at his his little, their little winery up in Saratoga. His father had in law had just or I mean his stepfather had just passed away and so Peter was kind of running the business and I helped him with it. And we were buying fruit from lots of great vineyards around 
California, we are mostly in Napa and Sonoma, we were the first ones to put um, Dutton Ranch on a Chardonnay label uh, back in 77. Right. And the same with, I believe we were the first ones to put Howl Mountain on a on a label as well. You know, long before the AVA Howl Mountain, uh, we just said, well, the grapes come from Howl Mountain, we put it on the label. Um, but uh, I, I remember um, all the vineyards that we got, you know, all these wines or these grapes from were really wonderful vineyards. And so I never really thought about ordinary grapes well uh or ordinary wines because we just had all these those you know wonderful vineyards and when i first got to chimney rock um i had come from working with St- dick Stultzner at stags you know just up the road and he has really wonderful sure. vineyards as well and i didn't have any trouble making wines from there but when i got to chimney rock um the soils were a little richer here and so i had a little more vigor problem to deal with. And the first few um, vintages, the wines were a little herbal or more herbal than I'd like to see them. And so I started looking at ways to to fix that. And in fact, um, one of my golfing buddies who was a, uh, a wine importer and retailer in San Francisco that sold a lot of French wines, uh, mostly French wines actually, uh, told me, oh, you know, you're overcropping your vines. You have to you have to thin the fruit down, and otherwise you'll never be able to make wines like they do in Bordeaux. So we tried that actually. The very one, okay. you know, the next year I thinned half the crop off of a Merlot vineyard, and it got worse instead of better. Um, and and I, you know, so I was at kind of a loss to figure out what was what was going on. And that that same year, just by chance, um, there was a horticultural symposium at Davis. Uh, and that particular symposium was on grapes and wine growing. And okay. Nelson Shawless, who uh, at the time was a professor at Cornell and a graduate student of his, uh, whose name is Richard Smart, uh, who's now probably the leading authority in, in vineyard um, uh, trellis management and in, in Dealing with vine vigor issues and so on, um, right. gave talks at that at that symposium, and a lot of the things that they and basically they were talking about balanced vines and how you get there and what what you do to make them and so on. And I l- listened to what they said and thought, well, that, that, this is the first time I've heard some sort of approach that makes some logical sense and you know has some grounding and and um, you know and, and um, plant pathology or you know, plant uh, physiology, and you know something that you would do if you were a gardener, if you were growing tomatoes in your backyard. Uh, so we started applying some of those methods, and and from that grew this whole procedure that we use at Chimney Rock and Rutherford Hill and Sanford and all the other properties that we do. And it's really based on uh, work that Nelson Shawless did in the 60s and 50s and 60s, and then Mark Cleaver, who was a uh, the professor at, at Davis that was um, uh, paid attention to all the you know plant vine balance issues and so on. And there's a lot of literature that of Mark Cleaver's that deals with all this stuff, and it's kind of backing up what what Shawless had done with Concord's and and upstate New York. Right. So did, is that where that whole um, the um, I guess the Fletcher liar has come up? Yeah, maybe I should t- take if I if uh, you think your uh listeners will be interested I can give you a little bit more history of how that balance fine thing came about. Um when uh Richard Smart was a graduate student of Charles's, he one of the projects he was working on was um looking at soil types and 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 trying to decide whether a particular soil type made great wine. And so right. he did a study of of soil types all over the world and found that there actually was no correlation between a particular soil type and great wine. So if you for example, if you look in the Rheingau, you don't find the same kind of soil as you do in at Lafitte in Bordeaux, for example, or um um you know, Martha's Vineyard here in or Chimney Rock for that matter, here in Napa right. or you know the Grange vineyards in Australia. I mean, there's, there just was no 
nothing that correlated that would say, ah, it's this particular soil type that makes great wine or even a particular variety. But what he did find, um, and that's what was the kind of is the underpinnings of this whole balanced vine idea, was that there was a very good correlation between um, the vine's look and great wine. If you if you go to if you go to to Bordeaux or to California or to Germany or to South Africa or wherever, uh, and and look at the wine at the vineyards that produce the world's best wines. They have a particular look, and he then quantified those characteristics. That you know, the canes on the vine are smaller than your little finger. They, the the canes tend to stop growing by May or thereabouts, and you know, there's a whole collection of things. And the brilliant part of his his work was, well, what makes a vine look like that? Can can we figure that out? And indeed, they did. Um, and then the next step was, well, if we if we have vines that don't look like that, can we make can we make them look like it? And if they if we get them to look like that, will they in fact produce great wines? And the answer to all right. that is yes. And that's so from from those early beginnings, I've applied all of the vine physiology techniques that that I learned from. Shawless and Cleaver and Smart's work to apply to making wines that that um, are as you know what we're doing. I think it's fantastic. I have to tell you, I, I, in in looking at it and researching it and uh, and actually seeing it physically seeing it because I, I've been lucky enough to have gone to some of the vineyards. Chimney Rock is one of them, and uh, it's 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 uh-huh. pretty amazing. Um, I do want to say, so I have some tweeted questions here. We can start with some tweeted questions. Okay. I've got email questions. Sure. I've got lots to ask you. So let's see. Uh, the first tweeted question is from um, Seven Springs Wine from Hermanus, South Africa. And okay. uh, he tweet, hi, Doug. I hope you're good and you, that the harvest is going well. What has been your biggest winemaking mistake during years as a winemaker? And then it says, if no real mistakes – then what single thing would you have done differently? And that's from Seven Springs Wine from Hermanus, South Africa. Well, I I think when I first got in the wine business, um, I think as most winemakers out of Davis or uh, at least out of California, we looked um, at um, bricks as the, the... determining factor for for ripeness um, right. and we would pick based on bricks and in fact just a I have a very funny story from a, a another famous winemaker here in Napa Valley that when he first got into the wine business um, he he had this magical number he thought magical number of 23 and a half bricks is what all of the wines should be in order to make a great bottle of wine. And so as he went through harvest, he picked some grapes that were, you know, slightly under that number and some that were slightly over it. And the last right. batch of grapes that he picked, he calculated the the weighted average of all the things that he had done and tried to pick that last batch to make his, his overall um, batch come into that number. I mean, we now all laugh at that kind of approach um, because <laughs> we're we're now trying to pick based on flavor, and we're kind sure, of sure. not that we ignore bricks entirely, but but we ignore it as much as we can and try to decide how we pick fruit. So, I think that would be my uh, what I would say was you know the mistake I made early on in my career is that we paid too much attention to bricks. Got it. Oh, no, I knew where you were going with it too. It's an it's an interesting um, uh, quandary, <laughs> but something I guess yeah. part of the learning curve. So, uh, well, the fact, next one is from Toronto, uh, Canada, from I, Champagne Houses, and they tweeted, um, "Will there be an opportunity for DF, meaning you, to come to Toronto, Ontario, in the near future?" So, you know, there's a need for you in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> Well, tell tell them that they need to talk to their importer and and have him talk to the Trelato, um Wines International people and and twist their arm. I'm happy to come. There you go. So, Champagne Houses, if you're listening, uh, which I imagine you are, uh, there's your answer. Next one is from James, the Wine Guy. He actually has two questions, and he's from New York City, New York, and he tweets. Okay. 
Transon blends versus 100% or near 100% varietal bottlings. How is the blended category growing? That's his first question. Oh, I think it's growing quite a little bit. Uh, and interestingly, I think some varieties do better by blending and others don't. Um, I think, for example, uh, trying to blend something in with Chardonnay is a mistake. Um, Chardonnay is such a distinctive character on its own and doesn't need anything else added to it. It tends to kind of reduce the quality if you try to add something, you know, blend something right. into it. Um, I know large wineries often try to blend in something that, you know, grapes are a little cheaper to to um, lower their costs. But when they do that, uh, it lessens the quality. And I think that's part of the reason why wines from great producers um, are distinctive and, and things that come from, you know, that are larger, you know, California blends, if you will, that aren't always all Napa or Chardonnay, um, are, are less distinctive. Um, Interesting. So, no, no, that's... that's and what's well, really amazing, what's really amazing, and I wouldn't have known this not having been a winemaker, back in my Martin Ray days, we used to filter, we don't filter things so much anymore, but we used to filter uh, a lot of things, and we had, you know, small lots, and so I would try to to line the wines up that I was going to filter right in a row and run them all through the filter at once, which meant that as as I filtered things, there was a, a segment at the start of one filtration and the end of the other that I had a blend of those two grapes and you know two wines, and so I would I would collect that and not obviously let that go into the the separate batches, and I would put all those right. things together, and we those were our kind of house wines at the winery. Um, and it was amazing. It, often they were like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Cabernet, that, and they might be equal proportions of that if I was what I was filtering. And often you'd think that the Cabernet would be the thing that the wine would taste like, but it was not. It was Chardonnay. Chardonnay is a mm. very distinctive, very powerful aroma and flavor, and it, it just Most stands definitely. out. So, so it's not something you necessarily need to blend other things in with. And I would say that's true for Pinot Noir as well. Um, Cabernet, on the other hand, often lends itself to needing other things. Um, when I first got in the wine business, you know, Martin Ray's mantra was that anything you added to Cabernet just diluted it. Uh, and I, that's, the, that's the mindset I had to begin with. But now, having made Elevage, which is a, a, a Cabernet Merlot Petit Verdot blend, um, Phenomenal. I've changed I've changed my mind. I think that that wine is more than the sum of the parts. So yeah, and I, I and just want to say that that particular blend, by the way, I have to say is phenomenal. It's uh, I'm a very big blend um, advocate, if you will. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's a strong word I would use for it because I really enjoy blends. I like I like them. I like because the, the way I used to think, my whole idea behind it was: let's just say you were interested in trying a particular varietal, but you didn't want to commit yourself to that particular grape, um, mm -hmm. a blend is a great way to maybe get an entree into the taste or the, uh, you know, the potential taste of a particular blend without committing co completely to it. And I, I think, uh, unfortunately, today's consumer, just my own opinion on this, today's consumer tends to be uh, a little hesitant sometimes in trying and adopting new new uh varietals but once they do you know then they become you know big fans very quickly just something that i've kind of i've noticed um yeah it's so it's, it's a shame isn't it that that i mean there's there's you know thousands of different varieties of grapes around the world and we're kind of stuck on at least in this country you know chardonnay sauvignon blanc cabernet pinot noir syrah i mean you know a handful uh right and it's a shame that that you know there's not that's that people are afraid to try, you know, Nero d'Avola from Sicily, for example, oh, or Alianico, or I mean, there's all these wonderful grape varieties, and um, uh, and you know, it's that's that's the charm of the wine business is to to exactly. discover all those uh, interesting wines and, and I'm how they, you know, to get and what wine they do that. They yeah, as you say, and I'm trying to get people to do that literally one wine at a time, one bottle, one varietal. <laughs> Having on a winemaker like yourself who, you know, uh, it oversees a variety of different uh, types of wine companies and 
um, and varietals. And this way, people can get get a feel for that. And that brings me to the second question, which uh, James, the wine guy from New York City, tweeted, which was, um, "Consumers seeking uh, are consumers seeking 100% varietals like uh, Petit Verdot and Cab, Cab Franc? Because 10 years ago, we didn't see that as much as we do today. So he, I guess, he wants to get your opinion on that. Uh, on whether other whether They're people are looking for other." Varietal. I don't think so so much. I think actually the the trend is the trend is the other way and and in all honesty there's no way to know uh whether right. something's 100% varietal unless they specifically say so on the back label. But as True. you know, as you know, um you know the law in in this country is that you can put um 25% of something else into a a, a a wine and still call it by the varietal name. Now, I, I personally Correct. think that that it should be less than that, but uh, but that's what the law is. So uh, in many cases, uh, people do blend other things in if they think it might work well. Um, so mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I think uh, Pinot Gris often has a little bit of something else added to it just to add a little more True. complexity to it, like a Viognier uh, sometimes, or yeah. That's right, and of course the, have, the the most famous story of that is when um, and, you know um, Bordeaux's were Hermitaged, as was the term in the 1800s. Right. When when the when the Bordeaux's were a little bit light, they would buy Syrah from from the Rhone and add a little bit. So it's it's right. there's a long history of that kind of. Technique. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, all right, so I'm going to go to some of the email questions that I'm getting fast and furious here that are coming in literally as we speak. So the first one okay. is from Domosake from Okinawa, Japan, and it says, Stu, this is a great show. I listen every week and learn so much from you and your guests. My question for Doug is, what is the hardest grape varietal to grow? Thanks to you both. I want to thank Domosake from Okinawa, Japan for sending in that question for Doug. Well, um, I just saw a little piece on uh, Kyushu grapes in, in Japan, and every yes. little cluster had a little umbrella over the top of it to keep the rain off of it. And I thought, oh, my Isn't God. Isn't that amazing? That I be... saw that, too. <laughs> that is amazing. That must be really difficult. Now, for you know what I grow, um, probably the most difficult to grow is Zinfandel. But right. uh, I, I don't have experience with um you know, a wide variety of things. But what I mean, Cabernet, Merlot, um, Sauvignon, or Cabernet Franc, uh, Chardonnay, maybe Pinot Noir is a little hard to grow, but... I was going to say Zinfandel, Pinot Noir. Pardon? I was going to say Pinot Noir. I kind of thought that was a, a fairly difficult grape to grow. Well, it's, uh, it's difficult in the sense that um, if, you, if you grow it in the wrong spot, there's nothing you can do to fix it. So the difficult right. part of growing Pinot Noir is picking the site from the very beginning. Yeah. Now, if you if you try to grow um, uh, Pinot Noir in Lodi, you're 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 just destined to fail. There's no way that you're going to grow it. Oh, well, yeah. I mean you can grow it, but it's not going to taste like anything. Um, right. And you can apply all the balanced vine techniques that we talked about earlier. And I'm sorry, it's still going to be not very good. It will make because it's just too hot. It's just yeah, right. it's, it won't make a lot of difference. So Pinot Noir is difficult on that front. Um, you just have to have the right site. But Zinfandel um, is as thin a skinned berry as Pinot Noir. Uh, it, it tolerates the heat a little better. In fact, it grows in a little warmer climates. But the problem with Zinfandel is it wants to overcrop itself. Um, Pinot Noir does not do that. If if, it, if anything, it's you know, you kind of struggle to get enough fruit on the vine. I would um, say the opposite. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh really? I mean, yeah, you know, no, I was say not... the opposite. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, what you're saying, what you're oh, saying oh. is, in other words, Zinfandel is, would be the opposite of Pinot Noir as far as how it grows. Oh, absolutely. Um, and right. and it it wants to put on more fruit on the vine than is really good for winemaking. Um, so right. it's always a struggle to you know, to thin it off and thin it in a what's such a way that it doesn't, the, you know, it, it doesn't, the berries don't get bigger and, you know, all those kind of things. So there's a lot of management things that have to go on with Zinfandel. Um, Pinot Noir uh, is difficult, but 
once you get the site right and you you balance the vines from a vine balance point of view, the rest of it, you know, as long as it doesn't rain and you get rot problems and that kind of thing, because you know Pinot Noir will rot pretty easily, but so will right. Pinot Yeah. Um, so the next one is from Bobo Six Hundred from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And it says, Stu the Wine Guru, you must come to Brazil and party with us. <laughs> Let us know when you will. <laughs> well, we'll both go together, huh? <laughs> there you go. I was about to say, i got to bring Doug along with me. My question for Mr. Fletcher is, what wine region is up for uh, – Was I'm sorry. What wine region is up and coming that you feel will make a big statement in the wine industry? Obrigado, Stu. That's what it says. So wait, I want to thank BOBO 600 from Sao Paulo, Brazil, for literally moments ago emailing in the question for Doug. Um, well, I think that um, uh, South America is – I mean, it's kind of a loaded question, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. I think South America is an upcoming area, and there's lots of regions down there that that have great potential in terms of of the site. Um, probably Chile is probably the most uh, has been blessed the most by that kind of thing, and that True. you know the it's a very narrow country, and it's very long, and they have water, and it doesn't rain a lot, um, at least in their wine regions. So that's it's almost perfect. Um, okay. Um, I, I think they're behind in terms of vine balance issues. The wines I taste often seem herbal in ways that indicate that they. You know they're not up to speed on on how the viticulture aspects. Um, right. Uh, and you know I think um, Mendoza. I just tasted a bunch, uh, a, a whole section, a whole group of Molbecs the other day, and I thought there there was a lot of really wonderful ones. And well, that's my good. understanding is most of the good ones stay in Argentina. And the, you I know, was going to say that. I was uh, going to say uh, that. That's what happens. They keep it. Yeah. So yeah. the next one is from D'Accord Vin from Brussels, Belgium, and it says, Stu, it's great that you bring both knowledge and down-to-earth humor to the wine industry. Love your show. My question for Doug is, what are there, uh, I'm sorry, are there any innovations in the production of wine you see valuable that you will utilize in the vintages to come? Cheers to both of you. Yeah, a couple a couple things. I mean, there's lots of, of, of um, and amazing uh things coming down the pike and one of them is from a a french company a couple french companies actually that we tried the machine this year it's an optical sorter device so hmm. you pick the the hand pick the the grapes um it runs through a a machine that that knocks the berries off of the stem so it's a distemmer it's, it doesn't crush them and right. the the berries then are jiggled on a shaker table so that they're all just one layer deep. You don't have piles any place. And then right. there's a there's a belt that has a that's running very fast that the shaker table runs onto and the berries are accelerated to you know, they're probably going, you know, three or four feet a second. So quite quickly. Wow. Um and they they run past a, a light bar that's over the top of this belt that is an optical device that looks at every single berry. And that is then inputted to a computer, and the computer, based on some program that you've set, either rejects things or doesn't. Um, wow. And, that's incredible. Um, so, for example, it can if you say, I don't want raisins, uh, which was a problem this year in California. We had a lot of sure. we had a little heat spike, and we had a lot of raisins that were generated on clusters. And it's in the past, it would be very difficult to get rid of those raisins because they're intermingled with the cluster. And with this sure. gizmo, you could do it. And how it worked was after it went past that that optical light bar, the belt ended, and the berries kind of flew off into midair, and there was a air jet. Bar that was, you know, uh, that was right over where these berries flew off the t- thing, and and if it was a berry that you wanted rejected, the the air jet blew on it and and changed the trajectory of the berry, and so berries that were that were okay flew onto one belt, and the berries that you didn't want flew onto another one, and you sorted them. Uh, Holy so, cow! You know, 
it was the most it's the most amazing thing ever uh and it's gonna uh, it's gonna allow high-end wineries like chimney rack to in fact say with and be truthful that we individually sorted every berry that went into this wine no you're right actually that's where i was going that's what i was thinking exactly what i was thinking amazing it's it's a, it, you know, in, in the past, it would have what we would do would be you know go out in the vineyard and um, Elizabeth Viana, the winemaker here at Chimney Rock, and I would have a discussion about how much of this this you know if a cluster had ten percent raisins on it, were we going to keep it, you know, or throw it away, you know, and and that whole kind of cost benefit analysis thing. Sure. Uh, sure. And now we don't have to play. do that. We we can just yeah. pick everything and it goes through this sorter device and the the raisin and we can decide how many raisins we want. It's the most amazing thing. It's really it sounds, it's an amazing it sounds, winemaking sounds unbelievable, tool. So the next so. one is from Sreem fifty two from New Delhi, India. And it says, Stu, this is a wonderful show. My friend Raj here in New Delhi recommended I listen and I will now listen weekly. I would like to ask Doug what changes he feels need to take place in the wine industry to make wine more accessible to a global market? Thank you. Well, wait. first I want to thank Serene52. That's an excellent question um, because there are so many things going on right now to uh, stop wine from being transported globally. So, if you, Doug, if you want to answer that uh, from your perspective, that would be great. Well, I mean, I... Um I you know this like this little optical sorter device that we just talked about obviously it's for high end winemaking but we need to mechanize the uh how wines are grown and harvested and and so on so that the price of of uh, an everyday bottle of wine can be you know um a the price that most people can afford um right. I think uh, there's the issue, at least in, in this country. I think many, um, you know, wines at the low end tend to be sweet, and I, I don't care for that kind of thing. I think, I mean, Americans tend to want sweet wines, and so I mean, wineries do it because they, that's what sells. Um, and I, I guess that's we sh- not that that's a bad thing, but uh, I'd, I'd like to see more competent. Table wines made at a price that everybody can have every Monday night. There you go. That's a great answer. And how, how that goes about, I think it just has to be. Uh, there has to be savings in in the, you know, the how it's grown and and right. and and land costs and all that kind of thing. Right, and then it gets passed along. If there's a trickle down effect, and it gets passed along uh-huh. to the ultimate consumer, which is the person that you know wants to buy it in New Delhi. India. Right. Um, right. So the next one is from Chow Xian Wine from Singapore. And it says, Stu, you are a great host, and I am learning a lot about wine with your show. A question for your guest. How do you know if a wine is worthy of bottle aging? How long should you age a wine if it is? Thank you greatly, and I will continue to listen to your show. And that was from Chow Chen Wine from Singapore. And I want to thank them for sending in that great question. Uh, my take on that is that it, that's a very personal thing. That that it's really up to you to decide. Uh, and so, for example, uh, sparkling wines or champagne. If you're if you grew up um, in London, uh, you wouldn't drink a, a a young bottle of champagne. It's really something you know. It needs to age, and you like that kind of. Um, are you? acquired a taste for that kind of burnt squash character of older champagnes. If if you, if you drink champagne in the United States uh, and you had that bottle in general, you'd say, Oh, that's over the hill. Uh, You know, people here prefer wine, you know, more fruit driven sparkling wines. So I think, and, and I think that's true for, you know, wines across the board. I, I used to love old, uh, old, you know, old Bordeaux's or older wines, and now I much prefer things that are less of that cigar box and cedary notes and more fruit-driven things. So I drink my wines younger now than I used right. to. So I think it's it, it's a, it's um, that said. Uh, I mean, I, I'm kind of avoiding his question a little bit, but um, 
I think wines from Stag's Leap District or wines from Napa in general, but Stag's Leap in particular, um, the tannin profile in our Cabernets here uh, allow you to choose. I mean, if you buy, you know, Nebbiolo from Barbaresco, for example, or you buy uh, Bordeaux from from, um, uh, from a good producer, those wines tend to be tannic when they're young, and so they're not very yeah. enjoyable. You really do have to let them age for ten years or so before those tannins start to subside, and they're and so the only real way you can drink them is after they've acquired that cedary cigar box character, um, right. and that's what a lot of people have learned to say that's the right level. That's where I you know, that's what you should be drinking, when when in fact in California. Um, and in, like I said, in Stag's Leap in particular, um, the tannin profiles are softer and suppler to start with. So if you like to have wines at a at a it's a fruit stage, they're perfectly drinkable. I mean, Chimney Rock is drinkable the the day we sell it. Um, Absolutely. If however, if however you like that cedary cigar box character, you just age it. Um, right. uh, you know, 10 years from now, Chimney Rock will develop those kind of characters as well. So to me, the advantage of wines like what we make here is that the consumer gets to choose at what stage they like to drink them. You know, if you buy, you know, as I said, you know, Barbarescos, um, you, 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 you've made the choice by buying it that you're going to age it. Um, yeah. and, and so I think we have an advantage, uh, uh, as uh, in Napa Valley in particular, but uh, California in general, um, that we are, you know, we can make wines that are drinkable at any stage along the line, and it's then up to the consumer to decide what they like. I agree. I have to say, I agree a thousand percent with that. Having drank wine all over the world, all different varietals, um, the one thing I find that I think we can, we as a, a, a you know, U.S wine producer can kind of pat ourselves on the back about is that you have the ability to drink the wine young right out of the bottle when you buy it, or you can hold on to it. The Pretty much the average, any of the average wines made, um, and when I say average, I don't mean average in, in taste or quality. I mean average meaning that, you know, any of the ones that you, you choose uh, right. and hold on to it and age it in the bottle and, and appreciate it as well. So you have that ability to do both, and you know that's being that flexible and that and and um, having that ability, I think, is what makes it stand out uh, in the wine industry. So that's just my uh, my story. I'm sticking to it on that. Um, yeah, and in fact, if I'm really honest with myself about the wines I put in my cellar, the ones mm-hmm. that I really like, the you know that they taste good to me, are the ones that I have a hard time resisting. I can always find a time to, you know, if a dinner party or whatever, and pull a, one of those bottles out. The wines that, that, are, that are, you know, a little tannic or one thing or another are the ones that I can easily resist. And they're the ones that right. are in my cellar for a long time. There you go. Well, that yeah. makes sense. So I have questions. Now I'm going to add some, go back to the questions that I have. I mean, there are some other questions okay. here that have been tweeted. I'm going to try to get to everything. We have uh, about 10, 11 minutes left in the show, so I want to just get to a couple more questions here that I have for you. So okay. the obvious question that I have not asked you yet, which I want to, is so your first interaction with Tony Tolato, all right, how has it changed over the years from the first time you met him, the first time you talked to him, to now? It, it hasn't. I mean, the very first time we met, he invited me to dinner, and he cooked. Right. And he I mean, did. that's that. That's that. In a nutshell, is what the wine business is all about. Is it's about sharing good food and good wine with people that you know. And I agree. Um, and uh, he always has time to make make time to sit down and share a, a great bottle of wine and discuss foods it goes with, why we, you know, how could we make it better, um, all those kinds of things. And he's the most amazing person on that front. He runs a, a, you know, a very big company, and they're always looking at wine quality as the very first thing. And I must say, from day one, um, uh, Tony's been driven by trying to make the best wines possible, and he's given me... um, I wouldn't say carte blanche, but but the ability to to work my craft 
Uh, and the the first question is always, will it improve the wine? Um, right. I mean, he'll eventually ask, well, how much is this going to cost? But <laughs> that's never the first question. And right. um, that hasn't changed from the the day that he bought Chimney Rock to now. And um, he and I work together. And uh, I mean, I really admire what he stands for. And we work great together on that front, I think. And um, I have to tell you, uh, I have to tell you, he first first and foremost, uh, he from his reputation precedes him most definitely in the industry. The other mm-hmm. thing is 50 years in the business. You know, you got to look around. You look around yourself in the U.S., not in Europe, because, again, you know, you've got dynasties in the wine industry and, and in the business. But if you look here in the U.S., and the U.S. is, you know, the big, the big uh, chunk of uh, wine production being from California – um, mm-hmm. But if you look in the U.S., not many can say that they're 50 years in the business. So you know that's an that, that's an incredible uh, feat in itself. And I want to yeah, also and it let gives you, know, you perspective. It gives you perspective that's difficult to get otherwise. Absolutely. And the thing I wanted to tell you, which you may not know yet, which I'm now going to be saying to you and my listeners worldwide, is that April 6th I'm going to be interviewing Tony Terlato on my show. Oh, good. So just, good. I just secured that today. So um, I'm very much looking forward to that. And, uh, and, and, and the great thing is, like I said, it, here, here's the thing. You know, you've got so – correct me if I'm wrong on this stat. Is it one out of every 14 wines that's served in the U.S. is a Trilado wine? No. It's, it, I believe it's one out of every seven bottles that's over $14 a bottle. Yeah. Okay. I, that's why I wanted to get. Country. I got the stat wrong. Yeah. So one yeah. out of every seven that's over fourteen is a Tolado wine. That's correct. That's an amazing so that, stat. So lo- what that means is that they're the leaders in luxury and the import business in this country. They, Absolutely. They they bring in all. They bring in a, a lot of the fine wines that come into the into into the U.S. I mean, they're not interested in the. You know the the low end things. Uh, they're interested right. in the high in the in the quality wines, and that number reflects that. I love that stat. Um, so you know, staying on that same vein here, what is unique about each wine company that you consult on for Tolado? I mean, I, I don't know if you can kind of give an a, a an angle on that. Well, I I think I can. Um, okay. uh, each wine uh, each winery has its own winemaker that that answers to me in terms of wine production, but each one of them has their own idea of what, what wine should be like. And we discuss that, but each one of them is really driven to make the best wine possible for the varieties that they're working on. So for example, right. uh, Steve Fennell, who's the winemaker at Sanford, did you, did you get a chance to taste the Pinot? I did. That we sent you? I, I think he's making absolutely stunning wines from that region. Um, Santa Rita Hills is really the up-and-coming Appalachian, along with Russian River, for Pinot Noir in California. I think you took, you took uh, the words out of my mouth, Doug. <laughs> it's exactly what well, I was you thinking. know, be- before Tony bought Sanford, I wouldn't have said that, and it was only after having visited down there that I realized what was unique about it. If you th- Think about the California coastline. Uh, just as it goes north of Santa Barbara, the coastline turns and runs east-west. I mean, it's, it's right. not intuitive, uh, but it runs that way for about 20 or 30 miles, and then it turns and runs north-south again. Well, the Santa Rita Hills is in that little region. And so, in fact, Sanford Winery has the Pacific Ocean on two sides, not just one. So right. it's to the south and to the west, and it's cooler there than it is in the than the, the Sonoma Coast regions where you know flowers and you know all these other people are, and and the, how they're promoting that is the coolest you know one of the coolest regions. Well, it isn't any cooler than Santa than Santa Barbara, or I shouldn't say Santa Barbara, but Santa Rita Hills, and the 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 Pinot Noirs in that area really reflect it, and I think Steve's making one of the best ones there. Um, the same is true for. Elizabeth Fiana here at Chimney Rock, she's really yeah, absolutely driven to make great you know, Cabernet. Um, Marisa Taylor-Huffaker at, at Rutherford Hill is making, I think, the. I mean, I, I'm obviously biased, but I think she's making the best <laughs> Merlot um, in the Valley. And, and 
Brian Parker at, at Alderbrook and Toronto Vineyards is making absolutely stunning Pinot Gris uh, for, yes. for Tony under the Pinot, the Toronto Vineyards final. Unbelievable, Tolado uh, Pinot Gris is just uh, the Pinot Grigio is unbelievable too. Let me, let me, that, and that actually brings me to a question. That's actually by the way, you that should, was tweeted. You should, you should ask. I mean, I'll give you a question for Tony when it comes up. You should ask him how he decided to do uh, Pinot Gris in this country or Pinot, Pinot Grigio. Okay, I will. Well, okay. definitely. Um, Marty J. Gardner from San Francisco, California, tweets: Ask Doug if we can expect any new varietals coming from Sanford Winery in the future, because I wanted to, since we were talking about Sanford. Thanks, and best, Marty. So that's Marty J. Gardner from San Francisco, California. Thank you for that tweet. And your answer, well, Doug? Uh, we already have it. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's been around for a little bit, but it's a, it's a wine that we've, we primarily sell in the tasting room, but Steve is now, we're now selling a little bit of it nationally as well. And it's a it's a Rhone white variety, a white blend. I mean, we were talking about blends earlier, and and where I think Chardonnay is best left on its own, I think um, Marsan and Roussan and Grenache Blanc and and Viognier and things like that are best actually blended, and and it's really the winemaker's craft to blend those up. Um, and Steve makes an absolutely wonderful Viognier uh, Roussan uh, blend. Uh, that we're calling uh, Fleur de Domaine. So, and it's it's uh, nice. if you if you're interested in white Rhone varieties or white Rhone blends, you should try a bottle. And and the fellow well, um, the the tweeter should uh, should look for it as well. I'm going to tell Marty J. Gardner from San Francisco, California. I know you're listening. Check it out because uh, <laughs> something different from Stanford. They make great. Right. They make the, probably some of the best Pinot Noirs, and uh, now you have something else to try on the white end. So right. I'm going to go back to my questions here again. We're going to go back and forth okay. here. We only have a couple minutes left, so I'm just going to give you this one question, and then we're going to we'll wrap it up. So being okay. an Oregon native, did you ever think of going back to work with winemakers in Willamette? Uh, a little bit. Um, I actually think that the uh, that California offers more. Uh, uh, variability and more interesting uh, wine types. Uh, I think actually, I mean, this is probably heresy from having grown up in Oregon, but I think we make better Chard Pinot Noir here in California than they do. Um, uh, whether it be uh, Russian River or or Santa Lucia Highlands or um, uh, Santa Rita Hills, I'll put them right. up against you know Burgundy or Oregon, either one. Oh, I, I, have to say it. <laughs> I have to say something. I, I, in some senses, and I'm a, I'm a diehard Oregon Willamette Valley Pinot Noir lover. Uh, uh -huh. um, I have had some very recently, some incredible Pinot Noirs uh, from Russian River and uh, and California that I thought were uh, could definitely um, more than hold a candle to Willamette Valley. So, uh, and, well, and, and I'm always about trying different wines. So we have a minute left, so I really wanted to say real quick, okay. one, thank you very, very much for being You're my welcome. guest tonight on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, the hour great, went quickly. I, enjoy, I enjoyed it a lot. Excellent. Excellent. And I want to have you on again, so make sure that I do that. I want to make sure everybody knows that they can go to www.terlottovineyards.com to learn more about Doug Fletcher and uh, all the Tolado wines available. You can go there. Why don't you go there? And if you want to check out some of the wines, maybe you can even sip some wine while you buy some wine directly from them. Doug, thanks so much. And uh, I will definitely have you on again on the show in the very near future. I look forward to it. Thanks again, Doug. Have a great evening. Th thank you. Bye-bye. That was Doug Fletcher. So, of course, this, that was the show tonight. Um, I want to thank everybody that uh, emailed and tweeted. And uh, as always, if you have any questions about the show, you can email them to info at stewthewineguru.com. Or if you're on Twitter, you can tweet them to me at stewthewineguru, and I'll read them on the air to my guests. If I don't get to them, I will make sure I get answers for you and get back to you. You can go to my website as well at www.stewthewineguru.com and click the link for all my wine articles, videos, and to listen to archived wine talk shows. As I always say, if it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Stew the Wine Guru, so drink up. Good night and good wine. And let's just hear from, I think, Tony Danza has something to say.
Yeah, hi, this is Tony Danza. You listen to Stu the Wine Guru. He's not bad. I listen to him every once in a while. You know, drink a Tuscan Red. Try to take down the edge. Pretty good. I like him. Not bad. Have a great night. So long.